Father, it is because of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are gathered here today and we can sing, Fairest Lord Jesus. Lord, we do thank you for what you've accomplished in Christ. We thank you that you have taken the truth of Christ and by your Spirit made us alive and compelled us to repent and have faith in Jesus. Lord, we do pray for those who are among us who do not know you. Maybe they think they know you. Maybe they think they are with you because they have some facts. Lord, open their eyes, open the eyes of their heart to see their true spiritual condition, that they are dead in sin and need you to come and change them. So, Lord, we pray you'd awaken them this morning, raise up their soul to the truth of Christ, give them, grant them repentance and faith so that they would be a follower of Jesus. Lord, we pray as we study your word today, particularly this book of Jonah, as we begin to look at this magnificent little book, I pray that we would learn from this life, we would learn from this era of history, history of ultimately our people, a people who loved you, but a people who also failed, much like our own selves. So we pray that we would learn from this and we would have faith in you, we would live in the confines of of what you've given us in your word, trusting and believing in Christ always. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a wonderful day and a wonderful privilege, privilege that we have to open our Bibles to study this morning. Today we are going to embark on this journey through this little book in the Old Testament a short book, the book of Jonah. If you would turn there with me, if you're not confident of where Jonah is, believe it or not, there is a table of contents in the Bible. You can look at the front of your Bible. There's a table of contents. It'll give you a page number someplace just past the middle of the Bible. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of Jonah, if only in flannel graph form. It's a story of the prophet chosen by God to take the message of salvation, the message of the covenant people, the message of Yahweh to the enemies of Judah, the Assyrians of Nineveh. Of course, the interesting part, the twist in the story is that Jonah went in the other direction. Instead of going north and inland and east, he went out to the sea west. Because of his rebellion, God put a great storm on the sea, and his shipmates tossed him into the ocean, hoping to appease the God. There in the ocean, Jonah, of course, was quickly swallowed by a giant fish, likely a well, and he spent three days there before it spat him out back on shore. Now, the story of Jonah elicits a number of questions, the first of which is simply the veracity of this story. For many people, as they read this, it sounds almost cartoonish. That can't, can't be true that this actually happened. Well, we believe it happened because the Bible records it, and we believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. Now, I know that reasoning is a bit circular, but our faith is not simply a blind leap of credulity. In fact, science and archaeology fit well within the context of Scripture and adhere to what Scripture tells us. If you do a 
just a cursory check on people being swallowed by great fish, whales in particular. This has actually happened even in the last hundred years. There are stories of fishermen who've been swallowed by whales and lived to tell the tale. Some folks question the story of the Jonah, the story of Jonah, because Jonah in this book says a great fish swallowed him, and of course fish don't have oxygen like a uh, a whale would, and they say, oh, it says fish, not mammal. Of course, we all know that whales are mammals, not fish. Well, just remember that Jonah did not have 18th century taxonomy in his mind. It looked like a fish. It swam like a fish, so it was a fish. And Jonah was swallowed by this whale. So all that to say, erase these skeptical thoughts. It's not to say we wouldn't believe this book without some science validity, validation, but we do believe the book Nonetheless, this is history written in the form of historical record by the prophet whom God had chosen, and then historicity and theological truth and even science bear this out, all validated eventually by the people of God. Other questions about this book are a little more relevant. What happened to Jonah? What happened at the end here? We have this close of the book. There's no really any resolution to the story. It seems like it's a song that's sort of half sung, getting halfway through the chorus and just stopping without any resolution. What, what happened to Jonah? What happened to the people of Nineveh? What happened to the people of Israel? And furthermore, what's the purpose of this book? Why did God inspire Jonah to put this down, his own rebellion, and give this, deliver this to the people of Israel? What's the purpose and use of this book for the people then, but also for us now, which of course is the most relevant question. Now to just give us a start and for us to fix our minds, the book of Jonah is a living picture of the people of God, particularly their hearts, in that day and age. It is not a story of evangelism, though it touches on that. It's not a story of racial reconciliation, though it may touch on that a little bit. The purpose of this book to get, was to give the people of Israel a mirror to which to look into and see themselves. Here's a man who's chosen by God, and he rebelled. Here's a man who was immensely blessed by God, saved, but yet he was angry with God and blind in his sin. Jonah's attitude and actions are really absurd if you think about it. God saved him, God called him, God blessed him, and yet Jonah insisted on this irrational way of living. Likewise, the people of God who had been saved, they had been given a nation, they had been given all kinds of blessings immensely, yet they lived in defiance of the covenant, the standards and pathway that God had given them to bless them and multiply them for His glory, including the hope of a future, the hope of ultimate salvation and the coming Messiah. God had given this all to them, and yet, like Jonah, they had gone overboard. They were truly a nation overboard. Just as Jonah, living in the glorious, gracious covenant, these are people who were called to worship God and to call the nations around them to worship Yahweh, but they lived in absurd sin, just like Jonah. That's why we have this abrupt ending at the end of the book. It really dangles a question in front of us. 
dangles a question in front of the nation of Israel. Are you going to be like Jonah? Are you going to be faithful? Are they going to call the nations to worship Yahweh? That's the question. Or are you going to go on living in your absurd, irrational sin? Now, the relevance for us is immediately applicable. The most absurd, foolish life is when you live outside of God's Word, rejecting ultimately the parameters of the new covenant, the promises that God has made to you, the promises that you have made to God. Instead of pointing others to the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness, you're becoming a part of that absurd, sinful way of life. When you abide by God's Word, there's joy and there's peace, there is glory, there is genuine evangelism as you call people to worship God. You could broaden this even. Do we live in a nation that's overboard? Of course we do. Now, don't be confused. America is not God's people. This is not God's country. We have, yes, there are his, in our history, there are Christian principles that were woven into the founding of our country. It was re, rehearsed and enhanced there in the middle of last century, biblical principles woven into a good country. But ultimately, the answer is not congressional bills. The answer is not good politicians. The answer is a change in the heart of humans, people who want to live according to the truth of Christ. And the way that other humans come to know Christ is not by good politics. It's by Christians being a light where they are, living a life, really the life that Jonah was supposed to have led, calling the nations to worship Yahweh. People of Jonah's day, had they done this, would faithfully point others to the covenant. Yet it was the Ninevites who ended up being the faithful ones. Well, let's read this first chapter. I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're really just doing an introduction. I'm going to give you an overview of the book. And then uh, Spencer's going to preach next week in Titus, but then I'll be back and preach uh, the rest of the book of Jonah for you as we round out the summer. Let me give you this first chapter, and we'll spend the rest of our time, and then we'll have Lord's Table today, spend the rest of our time covering uh, the truths of, of uh, Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break. The mariners were afraid. Each one of them cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us, give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account, on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account... This evil has come upon us. Was it your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? 
And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? And the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Before I jump into an overview of this book, uh, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction, just a little bit of context sort of a strange beginning to a prophetic book. A lot of the prophets, if you read the Old Testament, a lot of the prophets will begin with context. Isaiah, for instance, spent five chapters really giving us a a setting, a context, before we find out about who Isaiah was and his calling into ministry. Jonah, he's just introduced to us as though we all know him already. Indeed, that was the case. Jonah was a known individual, a known prophet, preacher, in the time that this happened. Jonah was someone who the people of Israel knew about already. They didn't need an introduction. They didn't need to be told who Jonah was because most of the people of Israel would have known who Jonah was. Who was Jonah? Well, Jonah, his name means dove. It doesn't make any kind of uh, point about that other than that's what his name was, dove. Of course, that would represent God's spirit in the New Testament particularly. It represents God's peace, God's blessing. But again, that's not made much of here in the book of Jonah, but that's just by way of information. That's what his name means. He came right after the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. If you've been around church very much, you know about Elijah, these two prophets. Elijah was probably the most uh, honored, venerated prophet in the Old Testament. He was someone who everyone knew walked with God. In fact, he was one of the few people who did not die but was carried away in chariots of fire. Elisha picked right up where he left off, taking his mantle. And, of course, these two men really were responsible for a whole movement of thousands of prophets, a school of of prophets, of preachers, people who would take the Word of God to the people. Now, when I say prophets... A lot of you, I know in your mind, you're thinking people who predict the future, but most of what most prophets did had nothing to do with the future. It was simply forthtelling rather than foretelling. They were just simply taking what had been stated already in the Word of God, and they were announcing it, re-announcing it, re-presenting it to the people of God. That's what most prophets did. Most of them were not assigned by God to be a writing prophet to add to the Word of God. There were Out of the thousands, you imagine, there were very few. Uh, Elijah and Elisha would have been involved in that. 
Jonah himself here, writing the book of Jonah, would have been involved in the writing of the Word of God. Jonah was among those many thousands of prophets, followers of Elijah and Elisha. In fact, there was a, an early Jewish story. We don't know how true it was, but the early Jewish history says that Jonah was the son of the widow of Zarephath. If you know about that son, he was raised from the dead by Elijah. And so at least tradition, Jewish tradition says that Jonah was the son who was raised up. His father, Amittai, died much earlier, and Jonah, they said, was raised up. Now, that's the context. People knew Jonah. It says, it does say he's the son of Amittai. Again, I don't know much about this person. This probably just identifies him as this particular Jonah, this name being somewhat common to the people of Israel. By the way, Jonah did write this. This is the way autobiography was written in the third person. And you find this all over the Bible. Even if they're writing about themselves, they write about themselves in the third person, even if they themselves are writing it. It says he was called out by God. He was called ultimately to be God's servant. And again, this would not have come to the people of Israel as a huge surprise. Jonah was already a preacher. Jonah, in fact, was already someone who'd seen some ministerial success. Let me read to you. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you from 2 Kings chapter 14. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. But he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Epher. You see what happened. Jonah was preaching and was preaching that they needed to establish their border. This would have been something that was necessary. It would have been something that kept him safe. I don't know if he said, we're going to build a wall or not, but he insisted that that border be established, that that border be clear, and this would have protected the Israelites. And so it was from the preaching of Jonah that even a wicked king relented and did what the word of the Lord through Jonah, Jonah had come to him as. God was preserving Israel, was preserving His people, and was using this preacher Jonah to do so. Thanks to God, there was a great revival under Elijah and Elisha, and this was sort of the, the fruits of that. If you do much study, you study the first great awakening, you will find out very quickly that the first and second great awakening was really one great awakening. The second great awakening was really the, in fact, in fact the first half of the first, second great awakening was really the, the children of the people who were there in the first great awakening. And they took these truths and they took these ideas and they carried with them. There were many men who were called to preach during that first great awakening. And a generation later, they were preaching in their churches and God began to do the same work again. Now, this is essentially what was going on. Maybe not in uh, as marvelous form, but there was some level of truth being preached. There was some mild revival that was happening in Jonah's ministry. And Jonah enjoyed some level of success. So much so that he didn't have to be really introduced in this book. People knew he was the one that was preaching when, when they decided to rebuild and 
make sure that the barriers and borders were established to keep the people of Israel safe. That tells us he also in that time enjoyed a fellowship with other prophets. During that time, again, there were many thousands of prophets. We learn, especially during Elijah's ministry, there were thousands of faithful prophets, preachers who were giving the people the Word of God, and Jonah would have been among them. There was a fellowship there who loved the Word, who loved to share it to the people of Israel, and Jonah was among these people. Now, Jonah was reared in ministry. He was reared with great blessing. There was a mild revival going on, and he saw this success in his ministry. The king listened to him, even a pagan king, even a king that turned against Yahweh. The people listened to him. Jonah played this integral role in Israel, and God had blessed his ministry. So this brings us to the first idea in the book, really presented to us in those first two verses, and that is Jonah, similar to the nation of Israel, is called of God. Jonah was called of God. He was selected out from the people of Israel, just as the people of Israel were selected out from the nations. And God repeated over and over, and you hear this all throughout the Old Testament, God did not select the people of Israel because they were great, because they were large, because they were powerful, because they were better morally than any other nation. In fact, He picked them because they were small and insignificant so that His name would be glorified. And you could say the same thing for Jonah. We know nothing about his physical appearance or his skills or his abilities. We simply know that God had chosen to bless this man whom He'd called. God blessed this man, and there's no no idea here that he was something spectacular or something amazing. He seems to be a pretty normal guy, other than the fact that God had decided to honor himself through this prophet. He was called of God. In spite of the fact that he was called of God, we learn, number two, that he was rebellious to God. We read moments ago what happened. He sinned. He did the very opposite of what the Lord asked. More than once, he failed in obvious and even humiliating ways. This gives us an important lesson. No past privilege, nor all past privileges added together. No past obedience, no fruitfulness of your life in the past can ever substitute for present obedience. If you've been a Christian for a while, you're tempted to look back and say, well, I think it's about time to hang up my boots. I'm done. I did some great things. God, don't you remember back, you know, in the 1970s when I did all this stuff for the church? It's, It's time for me to just hang it up. I'm done. You're finished with me. I'm finished with you. I can just sort of sit back on my hunches and watch the young people do it. I think even young people are tempted to do this some sort of victory in your life, some sort of moral victory, some sort of victory that maybe you feel like you've made it to the next step spiritually or in your life of spiritual maturity. You kind of think, well, I've sort of made it to a certain level. I don't really have to worry about obedience. I don't really have to worry about discipline now. As soon as you think that thought, you're going to be failing. Quite possible that Jonah felt this way. Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. 
you think about it, as you read the book of Jonah, this is a story of opposites. The children of God are opposite of what they need to be. They should be living according to the covenant. They should be calling the nations to worship Yahweh. They're not. Jonah, another opposite, a man called to announce to the nations God to go to these nations to bring the truth of the covenant of Yahweh to these nations and, and call them to worship Yahweh. And he goes the opposite directions. Yet, at the same time, you have a pagan nation, a pagan city, and we'll learn how terrible that city really was, Nineveh. Here they are worshiping God, loving God, turning to Yahweh. Now, this highlights the absurd rebellion of Jonah. You read the book of Jonah... And you read about his rebellion, and you think, how, how could you do this? All that God has done for you, all that God is doing, how could you do this? All this blessing in your ministry, you've been around Elijah and Elisha. You've had all this fellowship of prophets, and, and, and you've been blessed not because you're so great, but in spite of your, your, who you are. God has called you and blessed you in spite of all this, perhaps even your background. God has blessed you. And you're looking at God and you're thumbing your nose at Him and running in the opposite direction. It really is irrational. It really is absurd. Like all sin, right? All sin at its core is absurd. All rebellion is irrational. Last week, it made headlines in several of those pride parades the scantily clad revelers chanted, we're here, we're queer, and we're coming for your children. And what is absurd is up on Capitol Hill, a number of our congressmen celebrated them even saying and defended them even saying those things. Not just the fact that they can say those things, that, that what they said, that it's okay to say things like this. All across the country, they're proposing legislation so kids as young as 12 can divorce their parents so they can get body-altering surgery to become, supposedly become a different sex. And if you say anything about showing caution or waiting or being patient or just letting these things develop or letting parents be involved in this, you are labeled a bigot and intolerant and not allowing people access to life-giving gender therapy. The absurdity of that is it's life-taking gender therapy. Every doctor who engages in that act is actually destroying. They're violating the Hippocratic Oath. They're destroying someone's life. They're taking away from that person. And studies are showing they're taking away from them not just physically, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally. They're ruining these people's lives. In Canada, it's utter, utter insanity. Legislation is being proposed that if a teacher or a friend or a doctor hears that you don't affirm your child's whims as young as three years old, this legislation would propose that the state has the authority to come take that child out of your care. All of this is built on the scientifically and biologically absurd ideas of homosexuality and gender fluidity. It's irrational. The people who were screaming at us a year ago, trust the science, violate all kinds of logical thinking and science 
as they support these things. Now, why would I say these things? Because when you sin, anytime you sin, you join the absurd pride parade of rebellion. When you pick up your phone to look at pornography, when you decide to cheat on your spouse, when you decide to lie at work, when you decide to, to trample on other people so that you get a promotion, you're joining this absurd parade of rebellion. This is just like Israel did 2,700 years ago. It's just like what Jonah did when God, after blessing him for many years, asked him to do something, and Jonah went in the opposite direction and got on a ship to rebel against God. He was called of God, yet he was rebellious to God. But God, as he does, had mercy. God's mercy here was, in the first place, discipline. That initial act of mercy was a blessing, but it was a hard act of discipline. Number three, if you're taking notes, blessed by God. Jonah was blessed by God, and that first move of blessing was not instant revival. The first move of God's blessing was to put him in the belly of a whale. God was calling His child back to reality. God was using His sovereign control of nature to show Jonah of His authority, of His power, and to discipline him in that providence and even in the miraculous to discipline Jonah and call him back to truth. And as you look at the discipline of Jonah, beginning at the end of chapter 1, all through chapter 2, into chapter 3. You can't get away of how God uses His sovereignty and how that sovereignty works perfectly, flows perfectly with man's responsibility. You read the book of Jonah and you can't escape God's control of everything. It says He appointed Jonah to go. It says God appointed a great fish to swallow him. It says God appointed the people to respond to the preaching of the gospel. It says God appointed a plant, and then it says God appointed a worm. And then finally it says God appointed a wind to come. I mean, God is sovereign over this whole thing. God's even sovereign over the unbelieving masses in Nineveh. You can't read this book and say God's up in heaven just sort of responding to what people do. No, He's the master of ceremonies, and not only is he a master of ceremonies, he's created every individual that's in that great play. All that happens here is of the Lord, even allowing Jonah to fall into sin and disciplining him. All of it is part of God's massive plan. You can't get away from that reality in this book, but you also can't get away from man's responsibility. Jonah had responsibility to respond. God's sovereignty does not act in a vacuum in terms of our universe. Some of us get so excited about the sovereignty of God, we forget that Man is still yet responsible. We ignore the perspective of man, the cause and effect that we see from our perspective. Even if it's all part of God's plan, God does have in His magnificent plan the actions of human beings. How does He save people? He sends a missionary. They hear the Word of God. They respond to the truth in faith and then repentance. He doesn't just zap people with salvation. There's all kinds of human activity. 
People choose to serve the Lord. Yes, ultimately it's predicated on God's choice of them, but nevertheless they choose and they love and they serve and they have faith and they pray and then they themselves go as missionaries. So we can't negate the responsibility of man. Jonah had deep responsibility here that he did not take up. We can't just say that God acts in sovereign ways and because of His sovereignty, there is no responsibility. No, that is all part of His massive plan to include human responsibility. Someone said, I've never met a real hyper-Calvinist, but I know plenty of Calvinists who are real hyper. <laughs> we can't forget human responsibility is part and parcel, is part of God's massive sovereign plan. Of course, swinging back to the other way, we have to guard against the responsibility and ne neglect of the sovereignty of God. God is not pictured as this poor soul just hoping that Jonah and the people of Nineveh and everyone just respond to him and he's just up there with a furrowed brow hoping that somehow someone would do something. You know, God's sovereignty, appointing, orchestrating, conducting, moving is throughout this book. Both themes work perfect in perfect harmony in the mind of God even if we can't understand how it all works. We see this especially as Jonah is disciplined. In fact, after the blessing of discipline there, we see this blessing of prosperity, this ministry that explodes. This was Jonah's most famous moment, right? This moment, probably more people listened to Jonah as he preached in Nineveh, Nineveh than his whole life combined. Here you have a city that's larger, really, than the remaining people there in, in Judah. Here's this city that's massive who's responding and listening. This is, by the way, every pastor's prayer. That people will listen to me. You know, when I came here, I was concerned because our church was in a very different place theologically in terms of the way preaching is perceived and done and accomplished. And I was really worried. I thought, you know, I don't want to get here and six months later get fired. And so uh, what did I do the first two Sundays I was here? Some of you vaguely remember this 13 years ago. I preached a sermon those two weeks. Each sermon was one hour long, and each sermon was on preaching and the nature of real preaching. And uh, I was just worried. I thought, man, I need to give them all I've got. I need to give them you know, fire with both barrels. Hopefully they'll understand what they're getting themselves into by bringing me on board. And uh, this young man at the time came down to me. His name was Jim George. <laughs> and uh, Jim came to me and said, they don't really know what expository preaching is, but they're ready. And sure enough, this church was ready. You guys listen to faithful preaching. You listen to the Word of God. You listen to me rant on and on, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, even an hour sometimes. It's every pastor's dream to have a people who listen. And this is exactly what Jonah got. He preached. And if you do the math here, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people in and out just outside the city of Nineveh listened and did what he said. Because of that re repentance, we see, again, from man's perspective, chapter 3, verse 10, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them. 
So we expect at this point that Jonah would be overjoyed. Come out on a high. Man, these people are listening. I can't believe these wicked Ninevites listen to the word of God. That's what you expect in verse 1 of chapter 4. But what do we read there? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. So here is Jonah wallowing in his sinful parade of absurd sin. He can't even see how stupid he looks. He can't even hear how dumb his words are, how horrible and sinful they are. I mean, he's mad at God because God's giving them the grace that God gave him. He's angry about it. And he's so angry, oh, just kill me. Just let me die. And this is at the point in the movie where someone comes up and slaps Jonah. Thank you, I needed that. He's not thinking right. That brings us to part four of the book, Angry with God. Jonah was angry with God. Now, this is absurd on a number of levels. The Israelites throughout their history have been both the oppressed and the oppressor. They have been both Yahweh worshipers and Yahweh haters. People of Israel sacrificed children to Molech. People of Israel worshiped false gods. The people of Israel made up a story. Even the brother of Moses made up a story right after God saved them about a golden calf jumping out of a fire. And all these people fell on their faces and engaged in all kinds of gross acts to worship this golden calf. If you're counting, what you would discover is that the people of Israel, more years than not, were unfaithful rather than faithful. So no Israelite, no Israelite, no Jewish person, especially a prophet who's supposed to know the Word of God, has the moral authority to say, God, you owe us mercy and other people judgment. That's absurd. This is why racism is absurd in any form. Whether it's colonialism or affirmative action, no nation or race has moral authority, not even Israelites, to say, well, my people need to be treated better at the expense of other people. We all have a checkered past. We all have ancestors who were oppressed and who were oppressors, who loved God and who hated God, who acted horribly, and some who acted good. We all have a checkered past, and none of us have a moral authority to demand that others be treated by God worse than us. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve exactly what those Ninevites deserve, this judgment that was barreling toward them. We all need great mercy. We all need a preacher to come and to give us the truth of God, and we need the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and raise us spiritually from the dead so that we'll hear the Word of God and respond in faith and repentance. The fact of the matter is, Jonah and the Ninevites were probably very close, ethnically speaking, 
And he had drummed up in his mind some Byzantine racist reason why God should bless him and curse them. He's angry. He's not just issuing some mild form of, Lord, where's your justice? Or No, it has nothing to do with equality. He wants better treatment for himself and people who look like him. So again, he joined the absurd parade of rebellion. From our perspective, as you read this book, he looks like a fool, doesn't he? I mean, at the end of the book, he's cursing God about a plant that God gave him. He's an idiot. He's a fool. It's absurd what he's angry about. And so the point of the whole exercise, the point of the whole book, is that the people of Israel would read this and see themselves in the mirror. And they would make a decision on an individual and also on a corporate level. Will we be a people who live in covenant with God, announcing His truth and His glory to the nations? Or will we join the world's absurd, damnable parade of rebellion? That's why this book ends so abruptly. I do believe Jonah wrote this, and I believe Jonah wrote it with this effect that people would look at this and and ask themselves this very question. Are we going to be a fool like Jonah, chosen by God, blessed by God, yet angry and rebellious? Will we be like this fool, or will we follow God in humility following His covenant. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no question really for us that's more relevant, is there? Are you going to be the fool? Are you going to humble yourself and follow after the Lord in obedience and submission? Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to have our time of the Lord's table. Father, we thank You so much for what You've given us. We pray that You'd bless us as we uh, worship You and love You. We pray, Lord, that You would teach us even in this moment that we take the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. We pray that you'd teach us again uh, the truth of Christ crucified, that it was because of His activity, because of your mercy, that we can even come and have fellowship. The communion that you provide, even in this moment, the special spiritual moment that we can have together, even in this communion, is provided to us by your grace and by your mercy not by any achievement of our own. And so may we give you glory. We pray, Lord, that as we come to you and think through these things, we pray that you would be honored and blessed. Lord, again, I pray for those who don't know you. Bring to their mind the truth of salvation. Lord, perhaps they realize they are like Jonah. You've afforded them many opportunities, and yet they've never repented and in faith trusted Jesus. Lord, grant them that desire right now. I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.